we focused heavily on millennials and Gen Z Afonso, not just because we are those things, but um, that's who the consumers of the future are. What choices are they making? What choices do they, you know, do they want for their children? Those are the consumers of the future. The amount of dollars that they're going to be spending in food is going to increase dramatically. So what are their values? Can you create something that's values aligned with what their actual problems are, what their actual needs are? Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay Ventures. On this podcast, I interview innovators about their strategies, industries, and decisions. Today, I have Mike Terullo, COO of Bonza. Bonza makes pasta, pizza, and mac and cheese from chickpeas. You've probably seen them at your grocery store with their signature orange packaging. They've raised about $30 million and have products in 18,000 stores nationally. Before Bonza, Mike helped run Venture for America, the nonprofit Andrew Yang started before he ran for president. As you'll hear during the chat, Mike is clearly an expert on food startups. We dive deep into some of the intricacies of what it takes to build one of these companies. And that's why we named this podcast the playbook for starting a food company. We get into the nitty gritty of how the food industry operates and discuss strategies that young companies might want to keep in mind as they get started, including why it's important for small companies to have an all-hands-on-deck approach to sales in the early days, important expenses and unit economics to be aware of and keep tracking, why and when raising mega rounds for food companies might not always be the best strategy, and the importance of conducting research and actually following what the data tells you. We cover much more than that. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Spark Digital. Spark Digital is a full-service provider of technology consulting, software design, and development services. They work with companies in the communications, media, and technology industries. If you're interested in learning more, visit sparkdigital.com. Cool. Let's jump in. So just a baseline for everybody. I always like to start with what you're doing currently. You mind telling us a little bit about Bonza? Sure. So um, Bonza is a food company. Uh, our mission is to uh, inspire people to eat more chickpeas and other beans. Um, and that's because of their impact on human health and the environment. Um, chickpeas are one of the most efficient sources of protein by greenhouse gas emissions and water usage. They're also super good for you. Um, it's not just the old rhyme, but they're high in protein and fiber, lower in carbs, low glycemic, um, a wonderful food. Um, and so what we do is we turn chickpeas into foods that people already love. Pizza, pasta, mac and cheese, rice. Um, we've been at it for about six years. Um, and in that time, we've been the fastest growing pasta company in the country. And, um, you know, in our view, um, really brought, um, you know, healthy everyday staples to uh, tens of millions of people. Um, and, you know, and, and again, uh, we kind of think we're just getting started and uh, there's a long way to go, not just with us, but with all kinds of food companies that are trying to make, you know, healthy products, uh, what we go to and select in the grocery store every day. How, how did you guys decide to do chickpeas and pasta? How did that combination become the natural starting point for you guys? Yeah. So you had highlighted, uh, I've been at Venture for America before one of the uh, fellows in the program in his first, uh, in, in our very first class was um, in Detroit, um, working at a startup that I had uh, helped him get a job at. Um, and in, in on nights and weekends, kind of like messing around with nutrition and food and things like that. And, you know, um, 
he had long held that tech was a way to reach a lot of people. But, you know, I think the more he thought about it, and as we thought about it over time, food is something that, you know, everybody consumes every single day. And it's a wonderful way to have a large impact on a lot of people. And so he, a nutrition junkie, figured if he could make a better pasta at home in his hand with his hand crank out of chickpeas than the stuff that he could find in the store that was made out of, you know, all kinds of other, uh, you know, flowers and ingredients, um, then there might be something there. Um, and so it was really just a happy accident where he wanted a better pasta for himself. Um, we all kind of, you know, started trying it in, in the office and, um, you know, friends and family and um, some retailer, in this case, Meyer uh, in the Midwest, um, decided to kind of take a chance on us and, and we were off to the races. Okay. So, you, so you were helping him adventure for America then jumped on as this thing kind of got real. Yes. Um, I'd like to say that I moved out of the house and into the garage. So, yes. <laughs> I love that. Okay. I, I get the pain is the mother of all invention, right? Uh, for figuring out a, a food you need. Why chickpeas though? Of all the vegetables out there, why did uh, the, your co-founder, why did he decide to jump in and use chickpeas versus broccoli or something else? What is the, yeah, what are the characteristics um, or properties that make that relevant? So the number one thing in food is always taste. If you're starting a food company and you can't win on taste and, and experience, you're not going to have a very successful company and you're not going to be able to make the change you want to make. Um, and I think we can see that with the way that like Beyond and Impossible have approached, um, you know, making, making meat or that Oatly's approach making milk is you have to win on taste first. And so chickpeas are pleasingly starchy and actually quite neutral in flavor um, and, and, and really versatile. Um, so, you know, they're high in protein and fiber and, you know, vitamins and minerals and stuff like that. Um, but they also can be, uh, uh, tasty and neutral. You know, lentils are a little bit peppery sometimes. And, um, you know, other vegetables won't necessarily hold together if you try to turn them into pasta. If someone tells you they're serving you cauliflower pasta, it's either mush or a lie. Um, there's, you know, there's, there's, there's only certain foods that'll work for, for, for certain applications. So for us, um, chickpeas was just the best choice. And that's kind of why we've stuck with it in addition to those, you know, health and environmental reasons. And is it, and uh, is it taste like pasta or does it taste more like a different thing that's of chickpeas for people listening? We, they, when we, they buy it, is it just get rid of the pasta and use this and it's healthier or is it a, another product, a new thing? You know, our, our, our goal and what we tend to find is if you don't tell someone what it is, um, they're quite likely not to notice. Um, now, some people have discerning palates or they don't serve their pasta with sauce and then there's a higher chance that they would notice. We've generally found that the majority of people, you know, it, you know, we've, it's, it, people say, oh, I tricked my spouse or I tricked my kids. And we don't necessarily recommend that. It can be a little bit cruel to, to trick someone into eating something they didn't expect to. But um, we do think that, you know, when we create alternatives, we want them to replace the thing that you're eating. You know, we want to be your Tuesday night pasta night. You know, mm -hmm. your Thursday night pizza night. Like, we want to fill that role for you. That said, I want to take nothing away from the wonderful pasta and pizza restaurants around this country that, um, you know, make stuff in-house and stuff like that. No, no problem with them doing that. Nothing Did wrong with pasta and pizza. We just think we can make it a little bit more nutritious. Right. And you guys are currently selling it through uh, retail channels. It's not mainly an online distribution. Yeah, we are vast majority retail. Okay. And so... Uh, have you guys looked into going to the quick service restaurants, the other chains and saying, hey, swap out your pasta for Bonza? You know, we actually just launched our pizza crust in a, uh, a small chain called Oath Pizza, which is sort of our first foot into, into that world. 
Um, it's something we had been intending to do a while ago, but of course the pandemic um, put a serious delay on expansion and change in the food world. Um, but we do think that restaurants, colleges and universities, you know, corporate cafeterias, K through 12, hopefully someday, um, mm. if we can get the legislation right, um, those are all places where we can introduce a healthier, um, great tasting alternative. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's allergen friendly also, which is, which is increasingly a consideration for people. So I, I know you guys have recently expanded the products. As you mentioned earlier, you've got pizza, mac and cheese and rice. Yes. Which was interesting to see. Uh, what's the bigger thinking here about where the product and business goes from this point? Yeah, um, we, we have a bunch of ideas. Um, I think, you know, what we've started with is um, mealtime comfort foods. You know, we, we find that dinner is like one of the hardest meals for people to figure out what to do with every day. And you need an answer that's quick and that's healthy and that's tasty and that everyone in your family will eat. And that's a very difficult combination. Um, you as a father, I'm sure know this, that like it can be kind of a wrestling match. And so yeah. we're, yeah, we're, we're focused on those like mealtime staples, um, comfort foods, foods that people already love. And we want to make them out of chickpeas. And if there was a more suitable bean or legume, we would use that instead. Um, that said, from there, there are a lot of different places we can go. Um, you know, we've been, um, you know, one of the things that, that, that we believe is that the principles of the Mediterranean diet um, are, are, are good tenets to live by. We think there are a lot of other foods you can continue to make out of beans and chickpeas. We've got some interesting stuff in the pipeline. And of course, we're, we're moving into different channels as well, like we were just talking about food service. Um, so getting outside the grocery store um, and, you know, other ways where you could get, um, you know, uh, bean-based foods uh, in, into your own. Have you, now that you guys have a few SKUs, have you figured out what products sell best? Is there, do they all work or is there some lesson you've learned around where people buy replacement foods? I have this theory that some people just want comfort food to be comfort food at some point, right? So yeah, absolutely. Where, where does it fit? And I think that's, you know, to me, that's like the Tuesday night dinner thing. Um, mm -hmm. Like people are going to, are, are going to eat like indulgent foods and, and the stuff they love. Um, and, and I think, you know, what you find is most people are seeking some form of balance, but balance is actually really hard. Balance means like a constant state of tension. And right. we talk about balance like it's a good thing, but like imagine holding balance and then that just being like your permanent state of living. And that's what most of our relationship with food is like. Like I know I'm like constantly making trade-offs and like counting things. And like I've been doing this for like longer than I can remember. And I think a lot of people, or at least people who are sort of intentional about how they eat, think that way also. So for us, we sort of say, hey, we want to be an easy sell for that, but we're not trying to be the only food you eat. You know, like we're not soiling out here. We're not saying replace all your meals with this one thing. We just want to be kind of part of the fabric and a go-to and a reliable staple in your pantry or in your freezer where you say, hey, you know, here's dinner. Um, we were surprised to find that we sell, um, sure, we sell great in the Whole Foods of the world, and they've been a terrific, terrific partner for us. But there's a wide range of different um, stores and places where we can do great. Um, you know, we have a great business in Target and Kroger and Walmart as well, as well as, you know, like strong regional grocery stores. So it's really like eating healthy and um, solving the dinner problem is like a national thing. Um, it's not just a thing that, you know, people in certain areas are thinking about. Um, for a long time, we were surprised that we didn't have as much of a concentration, you know, on the West Coast as you might have expected, that it was like, hey, the Midwest was really strong. Texas was really strong. And mm -hmm. so it's been, it's been fun to see this be kind of a distributed national 
shift in how we eat. And we think a lot of that is generational. How big's your team? We are um, 50 on the corporate side um, and about 90 on the factory side. We okay. own our own manufacturing. Okay, I'm going to get into all that. One of the reasons I asked that is, you know, I think about you know, 50 plus person company on the corporate side getting distribution to 18,000 stores. For the would-be food entrepreneurs listening, how do you do that? How do you start, get from a product to getting onto a shelf, to getting onto many shelves? What's the method? Are there brokers? What's the brass tax how for that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, there is probably no single right answer, but our answer is from a team of people, none of whom had worked in food before. Um, you know, of our first 15 or 20 employees, nobody had done this. And we sort of wore that as a badge of pride. Um, it's that like classic, like entrepreneurial outsider thing. You're like, hey, I'm going to do something a way that no one else would have thought to. And um, sometimes that made it much, much harder on us. But I think on balance, it made it easier. Um, we sort of eschewed like the traditional um, uh, broker and sales structure. And, you know, just like in any company, your early team should go do a lot of the direct selling themselves. And you're going to do a lot of it through hustle. So we found we would just go out to, to trade shows and we would um, just bring the energy. There would be like our entire team, which at the time would have been five or 10 or 15 people, just like bouncing up and down, running through the aisles of these trade shows, um, you know, like, you know, yelling at buyers for these grocery stores when we would see their name badges in aisle over, you know, running samples up to them. And that sort of scrappy energy will go a really long way. Most people are still afraid to like make the call, do the thing. Um, and the other thing we did is just network our way to people, um, not even through professional networks, often through cold calling. Um, and, you know, you can literally sometimes just call a retailer and ask for somebody's contact information and get it. Or you can send them a message on LinkedIn, or you can ask a friend of a friend. And over time, I think we started to shift to getting warm intros instead of just blowing people's spots up wherever they were. But right. certainly at the very beginning, do not be afraid to just like get your product in front of people and tell them your story and see if they like it. Is there a trade show in particular you recommend for folks to, get, to kind of get started? Yeah. Um, Natural Products Expo West and East are the uh, best shows for new innovation. Um, there are many others, but those are the ones where we met a lot of people. Okay. And when you blow someone up, you know, whether you're going through LinkedIn or you're kind of scouting through their receptionist or whatever's going on, uh, do you follow up? What, what is the move? Do you send a product? Do you call them? Yeah. How do you get from cold to yes? You have to have a chance to both get them to try the product and to tell the story of why you're doing it. And in food, those two things are so linked. Um, you know, it's not just a transaction. Um, they need to understand because the consumer is going to make an emotional decision in the store about why they're buying the thing. They want to see so much more. Like retailers want to see like the details of your marketing plan. It's the craziest thing. I'm like, yeah, like if people are buying this, why do you need to know that? And it's because they're thinking about your future too. And I've been pretty pleasantly surprised by like how seriously buyers take their jobs. Buyers are the people at the grocery stores who choose what products go on your shelves. Um, how seriously they take their jobs in terms of understanding the brands and the why behind them. Um, and, you know, I think there's also credit due to people for trying to make purchase decisions that way. So you have to get them to taste it. 
And you have to get, get a chance to tell them their story. And that just means you're not follow up. And so how do you get them to taste it? You just ship them a product? Just, yeah, you ship it in the mail? Yeah, yeah. If you're at a trade show, you can cook it to them and just like hand it to them. Um, you know, I mean, we did that with regular people too. Like, I can't tell you the number of Saturdays that we spent at like shop rights in New Jersey, just like serving samples. Um, you know, like that, that kind of thing is how you get feedback from people hear what they like and what they don't like, what pitch works best. Um, and then, you know, and, and, and you can, you know, if you got a chance with a retailer, you do everything you can to make it successful, including kind of getting out there and, and investing in them, you know, on feet on the street. So when you're at a shop right in New Jersey giving out samples, did you guys just show up or do you get permission from the general manager? Oh, no. How does that work? Yeah. You get permission. Um, it's, and it's so you're all, already on all... the shelf at that point, right? That's right. That's right. So you've already gotten the buyer to say yes. And then you called the buyer and said, hey, we want to demo some product. Yeah. Or yeah. there's somebody at the organization. It kind of depends on the, on the chain as to how it works. Another thing you can do um, just to build a little bit of customer love early, you know, back when we had an office in Detroit, um, our team would go to Eastern Market, which is, um, you know, this like big farmer's market um, and and set up there and serve all day and, you know, build some awareness and validation and make enough sales to kind of try to help keep the lights up. Okay, great. Um, you mentioned there was a traditional way to do the distribution, right? And you guys didn't know it. And that was an advantage because you went direct. Can you explain the traditional method for so people are aware of that? What sure. are the channels? What do they cost? Do they work? Yes. So traditionally in food, so it depends on who's doing it. If it's a big company or a small company. Um, if it's a big company, they go to the retailers that they already have the relationships with. And when I say big company, you know, the big food companies in America, General Mills, Hormel, Nestle, um, you know, Unilever, um, on and on. Um, they can all basically go to a retailer and say, Hey, we'd like you to take this product. And I don't really know what happens in those rooms because I don't get invited into those conversations. But um, I assume there's a back and forth and some money changes hands and, um, you know, things, things just magically appear on shelf. For us, it's not quite like that. Um, you have to kind of prove that you deserve the spot and earn it. Um, one of the ways that people talk about building distribution rapidly is that they, um, they bring on a broker um, who's an intermediary who has a relationship with those retailers and can go right into their offices and talk with them. And those, those folks can be super helpful for understanding the specific dynamics of those retailers, for understanding what kind of sales pitch is going to work, for helping you get access to data, um, things like that. But when you're really early, they don't have enough time to pay attention to your tiny little brand that's doing a few hundred thousand dollars in revenue. They need to focus on bigger brands that are doing more. And, the, and it's just generally speaking, they can be helpful as you grow. We work with folks who are terrific now, but in our earliest days, we need to do the selling. It's just like, you know, you can't outsource that selling when you're the, the CEO or an early executive or an early team member of a small company. You can't just say, we're going to hire a vet and they're going to do it for us. Over time, as you have to build better programs and practices and um, you know, invest a certain amount in trade spend and, and things like that. You need veterans who understand how re- retail works. But early on, you're kind of better off not thinking about things like slotting fees, which is the amount that you pay to get on shelf. You say, look, if we do that, we're not going to make payroll. And that works for a while. And then eventually it kind of stops working. What's the inflection point in the company where it makes sense to bring on the brokers? Boy, um, it probably varies. Um, depending on you know where you want to get distribution. We found a lot of value in working with big strategic accounts and having brokers on those accounts 
um, because they were just so complicated. Um, the some of the largest accounts in the country, those are the ones where there was so much we didn't know and we could do enough business through them to make it worthwhile. Um, there are some folks who say it's really great to get a broker force out there to work with mom and pops. We still haven't done that much independent grocery work because even though 50 people sounds like a lot, a lot of that growth for us was in the last couple of years. And you know, when you have a 15-person team, you just really can't spend the time running down all those small individual accounts. So you, know, you kind of look at it either way. I think opinions vary. I think our opinion is you try to take on anything you can take on yourself and you find strategic voices and advisors where you can get them. And sometimes those are brokers and sometimes those are investors. And sometimes those are just like friendly people in the food industry. Um, the, the, the folks at Chobani, we went to their incubator program a few years ago and they have just been like terrific at helping us understand how the industry works and helping us see around corners and not, you know, walk into Walmart and say something really dumb. Got it. It sounds like it's a very delicate process. Yeah, it is. But you can mess up a lot and there's still other retailers who will talk to you. And, okay. you know, ultimately it comes down to, do people love your stuff and do they buy it and do they keep buying it? Um, you know, and, and I think, you know, we've, we've made mistakes and, and gotten chances and it's taken us six years to build to this point, which, which feels like a lifetime, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it, it can be delicate, but I think at risk of, I would err on the side of doing stuff rather than overthinking it. What mistakes have you made? Give some examples, things you learned for future food entrepreneurs so they can avoid them. Yeah, we launched mac and cheese because we were like, pasta, we have a great pasta. You know what else is awesome? Mac and cheese. But we had, we did no consumer research. We had mm -hmm. no understanding of what people needed in the category. We launched it with like rainbow colored boxes that totally lost this like signature bonza orange that we had. Um, that is, and so for like a year, it just kind of sat there and nobody knew what it was. We had no money to put marketing behind it. Um, it was in very little distribution. So we, even if we could have spent money against it, like, you know, what were we going to do? Like do like billboards, do digital ads. Like that isn't really, you know, necessarily how people do most of their grocery shopping when you're really little. That's not how you find out about new products. So we kind of let it sit for a year. And then we said, we need to go back, better understand the consumer, um, you know, strengthen the product and, and fix the packaging and kind of say, hey, what is it? What problem are we solving for people? And so you can't let, hey, we can make a good version of this be how you innovate. You need to think about what problem are we solving for people and make sure that you're positioning it that way accordingly, all the way to the packaging and the retailer and the marketing and just, you know, every piece of the puzzle. It sounds like the customer development side of the world applies to food as well. Right? That's it the, does. the same thinking. Right? It does. Honestly, the amount of research that, that we do, like I think has been the more research we do, the, the better we feel about what we're doing. You know, we did research for a new category last summer and we were all so convinced it was where we were going to go next. And then the research came back and, and the answer was, well, everybody's pretty satisfied with what, they, with what they're buying there now in that aisle. And we said, okay, well, I guess we shouldn't. And, and you know, just like thinking about that, because unlike a tech product, you can't just ship it and then be like, and let's see if it works. And, and then we'll pull it off the production server as soon as, as, soon as it, it's not a good feature, right? If it, you can't like A, B test quite as cleanly in food. Um, you have to go in when you do something. You have to commit and put your energy and your passion behind launching the right product. And so I think that's been an adjustment for me coming from slightly more of a tech background to say, 
we can't just like try a bunch of stuff. Like you kind of have to say, hey, let's make sure, you know, that people are excited about this. So we do a lot of sending products to um, people in their homes and getting home usage tests and finding out how long they cooked it and what they thought of it and what worked and what didn't and, you know, adapting from there. Can we drill down to that a little bit? So if I was to start a new food product and you said the word research could mean a lot mm-hmm. of things and it's probably different for tech companies and for food companies and for everything else. What would you actually do? Brass tacks. Like, what is it? You're mailing the food out. You're standing on a corner. Like, what is the research method for you guys? You hire a firm? Um, yeah, the first thing you're going to do is start with your product and make sure that people like it and that they understand it. And you're going to figure out how you're talking about it too. So that could be literally getting out at a, at a you know, at a, like a, some sort of place where you can get a booth. Now, maybe you're in a local grocery store and you're demoing in that store and you're seeing if the words you say lead somebody to walk away from your thing with it. You're seeing who's willing to buy it. Are people's kids willing to eat it? Um, you know, like that kind of stuff. And you, you just always have to start with the food and how does it taste in, in this industry. Um, we graduated to a lot of um, surveys like, you know, a lot of those just simple online surveys um, to at first kind of friends and family folks. But then we would ask everybody who signed up on our website to buy a box. If, you know, we sent an email around saying, hey, do you want to join um, our, our little squad and participate in the occasional research thing that we send? And um, that helped us get kind of insider feedback. And then, of course, you can use those platforms to reach different, you know, demographic groups or behavioral groups or what have you to just understand if what you're doing is resonating at all. You're never really going to know until you figure out how you're going to execute it in retail, but that can help you a little bit. And I would caution against using e-commerce, which is the traditional validation platform for people, like all these clothing companies that pop up in your Instagram feeds and all these different products for your home and whatever, like all that stuff, they can do it that way and it can work well that way. Grocery is still primarily an in-person transaction. You go into the store, you look around and you buy stuff. And you, you can't t- draw too many conclusions from what sells well online and, uh, you know, versus, versus what sells well in person. One of the things I've always found as an entrepreneur is if you walk down you know, the street or maybe through your school or you know, at a family get-together and you tell them about your new business idea, everyone says it's awesome. Even if they're thinking, that's freaking terrible, <laughs> right? How do you get real candid truth from the customers when you're doing these feedback cycles. So let's say you've got 100,000 customers, 10,000 sign up to be guinea pigs. You send them your new mac and cheese. Do you call everybody? Do you give them an, uh, an online form? How long is the form? What have you learned about ensuring kind of truth and real signal comes out of the data? So everything has to be blind um, to the best of your ability. Um, and it's hard if you're making something brand new that nobody's ever seen before. Um, we actually used university research partners to do blinded studies for us early on. Um, they have been really like pretty great about it. Um, and you can also That's do that firm. with research. Like different universities around the country can do this mm. kind of thing. And there are also different firms that can do it. Um, and all of them will help you design it in an intelligent way. But even before we did that, honestly, in the aisles of a grocery store, um, you know, People actually will just tell you kind of what they think, um, usually very rudely, um, if, if they're having a bad day. So you have to have thick skin, especially if it's kind of your baby and you're, you know, right. you gotta, you gotta say, Hey, it's, it's chill. You know, a hundred people like it and a hundred people didn't and, and that's fine. Um, 
So, you know, we found though, over time, you always have to have a benchmark. What are you comparing to? It's not, do you like this? It's which of these do you like better and which attributes, texture and flavor and, um, you know, cooking experience and whatever. And what did you think of them? And if you can blind your respondents to what they're testing, then you're going to be able to get um, interesting results that'll at least tell you something. Okay. But at the end of the day, you're going to have to make a judgment call. Yeah. You get some data and and you're going to have to say, good enough. And this is one of the areas where I think a lot of entrepreneurs make a big mistake, right? They get data back that says, meh, not that great on whatever they're working on. And a lot of people just, they're so vested. They put so much energy, it's their baby, to use your language. They're so committed to it that even though the data is saying run, they, they keep going forward and jump in. How do you stay disciplined about really hearing the data? You know, I think it's a, that's a great question. I think one of the things that we've done right and that I really, I ascribe to, um, you know, Scott, one of our founders is he always wanted to rein in new distribution. And I think this is a really healthy way to build a business is to say, don't just go everywhere and take every sale that you can take. There are certain retailers at certain times that you might not be able to support or you might, you know, you might not be able to um, uh, manage effectively or that you might not have the resources to invest in or that might not, you might not be able to build the awareness to drive the velocity that you want in Publix in the Southeast across 1,100 stores when you've only been in existence for a year and a half. So we said no to as much or more distribution than we said yes to in our early days. And we tried to make sure that we could fully support whatever we went into. And what you have to kind of try to do is say, okay, let's imagine we get this. How is it going to actually sell? How is it going to actually work? And it's this, the same thing, again, it's true in software, where some customers require too much custom work. They're too difficult. They're too big. Um, you're going to have to change your whole, you know, your whole like product development pipeline just to suit them. You can't do that. You have to try to stay small early. And I think we just got in the habit early of saying no. And so I think we still have recognized, hey, every single product we launch risks our good name, um, not just with um, retailers, um, of course, with retailers, but really with people at home. If they try bonds of stuff and they don't like how it tastes or like, you know, it just doesn't work for them, um, then we have lost something. And so early on, we could kind of take more risks at times. Um, we've improved our pasta three or four times since we launched it. Like we keep um, you know, subtly improving what we're doing, our, our, you know, our process of making it and, and, and what have you. Um, and I think, um, you know, we had the guts to launch something that wasn't perfect at the beginning. And that was important for just getting out there. But over time, you have to be more and more and more disciplined about what you do. And again, continue to say no to more things than you say yes to. That goes against a little bit of conventional startup wisdom. I mean, candidly, the, the phrase we all use is fuck it, ship it. Yeah. Right. You get it out there. You get feedback, you start learning. What's different here, right? Because you're building a product, there's a J-curve, right? There's cost, yeah. time, and effort. Why not just get a first product out and find out everyone hates it? There was a, there was a, a direct-to-consumer uh, food company we looked at investing in, and they took very much a fuck-it-ship-it mentality. They <laughs> had a very bad product at the beginning, they got it out, they learned that X percent, you know, a small percentage of people liked it, they sent the next one. They were happy to see that doubled. And they were just following the data and accepting failure as part of the process. 
this feels different, what you're recommending. It feels like you're saying, it doesn't have to be perfect, but it's got to be pretty damn good before you hit the channel. Is it just that they were online and they didn't have a channel risk? Or is there something, some other insight here? Yeah, it's possible that that's what it was. I think, um, you know, for us, um, and again, that might be an, an appropriate approach. You might be able to say, well, we only reached a thousand people. And if, if 700 of them hated it, it doesn't really matter because that's only 700 people that we suddenly have to win back. That can work. The difference is, and the thing that they might not have thought of is how much time you waste with lead times. Um, physical products and tech products are just so different. The packaging development, the product development, the finding a co-manufacturer to scale up your initial production, to dial in the settings to get that initial run to be as close to good as you can get it. Every one of those things has um, time to it. And going from thinking of a new product idea to launching it in the market, I mean, the other thing is retailers will only take new products, you know, on average in a category about once a year for super fast moving snack categories or beverages more like every six months. But that means that you only have so many shots. And Mm. typically speaking, you know, from thinking of a product to getting it on shelf is going to be about a year Now you can do it a little bit faster, especially if you're not trying to get it on shelf early, but investing all that time and energy, wouldn't you just spend a little bit more time in the kitchen? Just spend a little mm-hmm. bit more time in the kitchen. You know, don't give people mm-hmm. food that they don't think tastes good because that just isn't going to work. And if you think you can do it, I mean, it's just... Now, what I will say, you don't need to please everybody right off the bat. Our product was better suited for people who already had to be gluten-free right away. So we mm-hmm. focused on that audience because we knew, let's be honest, the standards for gluten-free pasta were a little bit lower than the standards for regular pasta. Okay. So right. we targeted that group when we knew our right. product still had some growing to do. Over time, as we've improved it, we don't really focus, you know, we know lots of people who, who don't eat gluten um, eat our pasta, but we're able to focus on a larger, broader market because we've continued making significant improvements. You said something really interesting before. You said you were saying no to distribution offers if you didn't have the resources to give them sufficient support. What's the playbook for a food founder for giving sufficient support? What is that? So the first thing you have to think about is working capital. And um, that is not a fun podcast topic, so we're not going to go deep on it. But um, can you afford <laughs> the the uh, supply chain impact of sourcing a bunch? So when you first get an order from a retailer, there's an initial fill. That fill might be very large, and they might get it for free from you um, if you're you know paying slotting or something like that. So maybe you get paid, but in order to do that, you have to invest a bunch in resources, in, in you know the raw materials and the production and then getting it to stores, and then you get paid whatever 30, 60 days later. Um, right. That takes a long time. And when you're small, that ties up a lot of money. And you may not have enough money to do that. Now, that's not a great reason not to say yes to something if you think it's going to be good. But let's think about that when you think about how much stuff you're launching at once. You need to think about that when you fundraise also. Um, the other is marketing support. They expect you to invest in a certain amount of trade funds, which is like discounting or ad fees or things like that, to help people find the product in store. If you can't do that, if you're not going to ever be able to get sale tags up on your product and deal with the complicated set of accounting issues that come with that in the food world, it's very manual and there's a lot of issues. Um, chargebacks is the phrase that we use. Um, there's a lot of places where you can lose money that you didn't expect to. You need to make sure your unit level economics are good when you do that. And then lastly, it's that sort of, um, and the most important piece here is 
the, um, the, the shopper, the, the person at home, the consumer, are you going to be able to reach them and convince them to come into a grocery store that has 40 to 60,000 products on its shelves and pick yours off the shelf when there are so many brands competing for their attention and investing money in social and in shopper marketing applications and stuff like that. So all those things, it's just to say, make sure that you're going to be able to invest in the in-store marketing you need to do in the out-of-store social media brand building that you're going to need to do and in working with you know the retailer in your own supply chain. What's the budget to launch something? Is there a rule of thumb like X dollars per store, X dollars per box? Like what, how, do you, how does a new entrepreneur figure out what is sufficient? You figure out your payback period. Um, the industry standard is six months, but we would prefer for it to be much faster than that. Um, where you say, okay, you know, where it's going to take us about six months to break even on this thing. Um, sometimes big food companies say more like a year or even longer. Um, we prefer to be quicker because again, we don't have the resources. Um, so we prefer to pay back in three months, but you know, if you're in the three to six month range and you're actually right about it, um, cause yeah. early on, you're going to be wrong. You're going to assume a lot more sales than you get. Um, if you're actually right about that number, once you learn the pattern through trial and error, through burning a little bit of extra capital, then you'll kind of figure it out and you'll understand your kids. Again, okay, that's don't the say no to a good side. opportunity. Yeah, that's the working capital side and the marketing. But tell me side. about the marketing. What do you need? To, what, what's the budget for marketing? How much money do you need? Well, the, the, I, to I think support that's, a launch. How, how do you, how do you think about it? What's the what's a metric? Is it X dollars per location? Is what? Is, how do you think about it? You could say you could give a number and say, look, a retailer would want you to spend about fifteen percent of your sales on trade spend. And you could call that the number. Um, but early on, we certainly couldn't do that. We didn't have the money. And most of our marketing was social media. Um, and it was directly targeting specific consumers who, and, you know, leveraging influencers and user generated content. Um, you know, I call them influencers. Some of these people, we would have people who had like 500 or a thousand followers and we're like, Hey, you know, you make good stuff. Why don't you make some stuff with our pasta? And, and that was a way for us to really build. Um, you know, trial and loyalty and love for what we were doing without um, having to spend, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on big marketing programs. So stuff like that works too. But, you know, you could call it 15% um, in, in trade spend is what you would expect to spend. And, you know, you probably wouldn't be terribly far off. So you've been in the startup game for as long as I've known you, one form or another. Uh, we're shifting gears here a little bit. Sure. Uh, and the the whole world, you know, is at least in the states, is reimagining food right now. Right? This is a, a big macro trend. You guys are an important part of it. There are traditional tech VCs out there, and that's a lot of where you know you have tech and life science risk capital deployed into the system. Have been really have been focusing a little bit on the space, but it's a it's a tweener in terms of fit for the firm's strategies. How do you raise money as a food entrepreneur today? Because it seems to me there's not a ton, at least that I'm aware of, of infrastructure and capital sources. And you guys have been successful. You raised a ton of dough, as we said earlier in the show, about close to $30 million. How do people navigate this? Where do you go? Where do you look? How do you find it? Yeah. Um, you know, I think we've actually, um, I think we've started these seafood companies raising a lot more. Um, and treating themselves as if they are tech companies. And I think there's some danger in that because if you can't provide, just to what you were saying, if you can't provide the returns that a venture investor is looking for and they're wading into an unfamiliar space, 
they're going to push you into things that aren't necessarily the right thing for your business. We've focused on having investors who understand food and consumer packaged goods, you know, fashion and beauty and things like that as well. Um, and they, you know, we do have sector specific, um, you know, CPG investors. And so they understand here's how much money we're putting in. Here's our expected return. Um, and they're willing to get in for the long haul and say, let's build this thing and see how far it can go. There are plenty of people who would have given us much more money at even a much higher valuation than we took. But if you do that, you're going to mess up your incentive structure. And everything at a startup is incentives. It's not about maximizing. It's about managing the right alignment because you're building something. We're six years in and we have years and years to go. You know, we, we're going to keep growing 50% plus year over year for years to come. So we need to be building for the long term. We can't have somebody who says, but you didn't grow 100x because that's not how food companies work. They don't right. grow 100x. You know, certainly not in, 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 a, in, a, in a couple of year timeline, the way that software can. So if you have people, you know, giving you outsized valuations who don't understand the way that you're going to build your business, who push you into doing risky things, you could end up with several hundred million dollars in capital and not the sales to back it up. We think that there are some food companies that can build that way. And there are a few that sort of prominently have, but there are a whole lot more that are raising mega rounds right now that probably shouldn't be. And We've been waiting until we had the sales to say now's the right time to raise money because we are we are confident that we've de-risked the next three years, four years of our plan. And that's the plan that we take to investors and we say, here, we're going to build up. And this is probably a little bit more of what you wanted me to say is the actual answer is look at your unit per SKU per store per week. So how many boxes of penne pasta am I selling per store per week? figure out how much growth I need in the number of points of distribution and in that base velocity in order to reach my sales targets. Figure out if that's reasonable based on the universe of potential retail partners, on my, my you know, product development pipeline, on trends that I've seen when I added new SKUs, and make sure that you can build bottoms up to your revenue targets. And if you can do that, and then you have your story, and then you have your consumer love, then you've got a pretty strong case for, hey, we're going to grow 50 to 100% every year. What I'm hearing from you is that the normal laws of startup physics apply in this sector. There are two ways of doing that. One, of raising. One is, you know, uh, raising at valuations that you can grow into, and the fundamentals match the game. And then there's hype games. For companies that get super, a lot of attention, a lot of excitement from the investor community, they get valuations that are unreasonable. To, to use a, a subtle word for how I feel about it. Uh, and they get totally crazy. And you can win in both games. I, I used to think low, uh, poorly of the hype game, but if you can keep playing that game as a founder, you can do very well. I'm sure there's other founders out there that know they're not going to grow into these valuations, but as long as they can trade again or do a secondary, they win. Yeah. They win. Yeah. It's a game of hot potato. Well, and, like the, and the thing is, like, the goal is to accomplish your mission, right? Like, the goal is to build a company that lasts. And food companies are around for decades. If you do this right. thing right, you've got decades. You can keep innovating. You can keep making stuff that people love, that their kids will eat, like, you know, that they'll, they'll then feed their kids. And, and the successes in this space, some of them went a really long time. Um, you know, like Annie's or, or Oatly were around for 15 or 20 years before they really heavily capitalized or exited or whatever. And 
I think that, you know, and then that patience has paid off because those companies can have, um, you know, revenue and um, upside. And I think that, you know, and those, those two are very different. They're different examples of something similar, but you don't need, you don't squander the opportunity to go big and tell a, a crazy big story at any point. You just have more of a track record to do it off of. It's just about whether you're trying to do this to, you know, play it like a tech company or play it with that sort of hype cycle game and whether you want to be in this for the long term or not. And I think for us, if we felt like there was a super scintillating story that would promise 100x returns to investors, we would be out there telling that. Now, we're still more aggressive than a lot of companies in the space. We're not talking about a couple X multiple of our revenue or something like that. Um, there are plenty of companies that work in sort of more commoditized spaces like that, but there's definitely a middle ground of really great high growth brands that are, you know, fulfilling their mission and making their investors happy. And I think investors should look for those. They don't need to invest in something that's telling you that it's a billion pre when it's got $20 million in sales. Well, maybe tip your hand here a little bit and tell the world how uh, VCs, investors, and entrepreneurs should be thinking about the future of food. How is this whole space going to evolve? Where do you think opportunities exist for folks? Um, yeah, so I think, you know, the, the thing that has been most interesting and promising is, you know, over the last 20 years, we've seen about, you know, something approaching 1% a year, really over the last 10 years accelerating, something approaching 1% a year of market share shifting from big food companies to emerging brands. And that suggests that there is a consumer shift that's happening that's, that's driving that. And, and we think we've seen that. Um, now, there can be a hype cycle, and I'll get to some of the watchouts in a second. But if you really pay attention to what um, particularly young people, we focused heavily on millennials and Gen Z upon, and not just because we are those things, but um, that's who the consumers of the future are. What choices are they making? What choices do they, you know, do they want for their children? Those are the consumers of the future. The amount of dollars that they're going to be spending in food is going to increase dramatically. So what are their values? Can you create something that's values aligned with what their actual problems are, what their actual needs are? So we think the reason that what we're doing works and the companies that we really admire what they're doing works, the reason is they're thinking about what products will create value for people. The history of the industry is what products will sell. So the problem that you see in food is um, <laughs> there, there are basically, at any given time, there are two divergent ways of thinking about it, which is to that point about balance and what we struggle with, everybody struggles to make the right choices. They want to believe they're doing something healthy, but they want something tasty, right? If we can deliver something that actually is healthy, over the long term, we're going to win. That's where the real opportunity is. If you see a trend and you just launch a, a fast follower product, um, you know, suddenly there's a dozen companies in the category and everybody's trying to grab a new piece. Um, sometimes big food companies innovate this way also. You're just, it's just going to be a mess. And, and there's not a long-term value creation opportunity there. So we say, focus on the younger consumers, focus on what their values are, which is going to be, you know, sustainability and um, health alongside taste. And, you know, don't be afraid to build, um, you know, Slightly slower, which is to say, you know, a hundred percent a year instead of trying to build five hundred or a thousand percent a year. Right. What does the industry need? So, um, you've you've got market segments to target. Yeah. 
what 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 do as an entrepreneur what tools are you wishing existed services existed at some you hope someone listening to this will go and build um you know there's been a proliferation of technology companies that are providing services to food and cpg companies i just think we need more talent to keep coming into this space um you know the key to building any company is is talent um you know i i think People who want to create real change in, in the world um, should recognize that there is an opportunity to have a huge impact on the environment where, you know, one third of um, greenhouse gas emissions are tied to the food industry, we now think, um, you know, there's a huge opportunity to make an impact on human health and healthcare because food is the most important component to that. Um, we want people to keep coming in and doing this, whether they're joining companies or starting companies. The industry is expanding. And that's my point about all the market share being stolen, right? Like the industry is expanding. There are more companies than ever. Um, there are more good small companies than ever. Um, you know, don't just go join the big ones, um, but view this as an opportunity to, to, to really change things. Um, and, and make sure that you're finding those companies that, again, are trying to actually create value for people as opposed to just saying, boy, I bet I can sell a lot of beats. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's the thing that, that we help people do. It seems to me that there's a need for impact in the food world beyond the commercial side. I remember, I don't know if I got this right, but I'm pretty sure I do, that the government has designated pizza as a vegetable. Yeah. Right? Crazy things uh, have yeah. gotten through legislation. What, would, what, is, what needs to change, if anything, if you were king? How would you rewrite law to help? uh the the public get healthy good food options i mean that's a very complicated question um but you're absolutely right that it needs it needs attention um another uh, fun anecdote for people um in order for a product to be considered a protein in schools you have to literally put another animal protein on it so if we wanted to serve bonza as a protein pasta um for maybe you know um, in order to replace an animal-based protein, they would have to put a meat sauce or a cheese on it in K through 12. Wow. That's, that's just like an impossible disaster for us to try to change the way that people eat. So that's how strong your lobbies are in meat and in sugar and in dairy. Um, I think, you know, there are documentaries that have covered this ground very, very well. Um, sometimes they can Could be you recommend scary. Some? Um, I'm going to, they're going to slip my mind now that we're live on this thing. Um, like ones there, like what the health works yeah, over knives. So those, yeah, other oh, the other ones that grab you. Um, we'll link to them in the show notes for folks. Yeah, I need to. I need to go back. It's, it's okay. You can do it after the show. But, that I can't oh. remember the name of right now. That was the one that just got me, and I was like, oh man, like you know, soda companies are just up there making sure that they've got fountains in schools and stuff like that, and that they're taking out cooking equipment and the potatoes and vegetable and like all this sort of stuff. There's definitely a huge policy component to it, but really like there's an innovation component to it too, because you can't just legislate your way out of problems. You have to make sure that there are, you know, well-built solutions that will make people happy to eat healthier products. If you don't do that, like you're not going to, like you can't solve structural problems purely with legislation. You really need, and I think we've seen this in, in tech and in medicine over the last year, you need the private sector to step up and have people innovate in ways that are values aligned. And, you know, I think that's the future of the industry. It seems like they're stifling some innovation with some of these requirements, right? Like having Almost, to put meat yeah. 
on a vegetable protein to call it a protein. Yeah, yeah and, 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 there, and, and companies are working on this. Um, but, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. And, and, you know, same on the um, agriculture and sustainability side. And there's, 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 just, there's a lot of stuff. Um, you is, know, is there a coalition for the, the smaller group of companies out there? Uh, to do lobbying, have you guys tried to counteract some of the corrupt behavior? This will be the first conversation I've had where the concept of lobbying even entered the equation. Um, I think uh, you know, for us, we've still viewed ourselves as too small, um, but it's a good idea, and I'm sure um, some of the plant-based meat companies are out there doing it because it's it's very important for for what they want to accomplish as well. And if you're right that they're taking one percent market share a year, eventually they're going to have spending power in aggregate, even if it's fragmented. So. Yeah, I think we may okay. already. Um, I think I think you're right that working together is, is, is you know part of the future. Cool. Um, I want to switch gears to, to one more topic before we uh, before we cut for today. So I, I know you landed in Bonza via your your experience at Venture for America. Uh, for those listening, you were in the senior management of Venture for America. Can you tell us a little bit about the program? Yeah. Um, so Venture for America. Um, has, has grown and changed a little bit. What we've been trying to do is um, send young people to careers in startups and entrepreneurship um, in cities that have relatively fewer startups and entrepreneurs, um, rather than just sending people to um, you know, New York, Silicon Valley, um, into tech companies or consulting firms or uh, law firms or banks or you know, other, other sort of Fortune 500 companies. Um, we're saying, hey, go smaller, go earlier. Um, go to cities like Detroit, New Orleans, Providence, Cincinnati. Um, those are some of our first cities. Um, and, and that's a great proving ground for a young person to learn how to operate a company, potentially become an entrepreneur themselves. So far, so VFA is up to about 200 kids per class, comparable with the size of a business school. And since inception in 2012, there have been about 200 companies started by VFA alumni, um, including um, you know, the likes of Bonza and um, it's been really, it's been really fun and and exciting to see that network and community build, um, you know, and and sort of be an alternative professional path that's a little bit more brightly lit. And lately, um, I've really admired how the organization has has um, taken more of a focus on underrepresented groups getting into entrepreneurship, um, and, and they've been um, more successful there um, in in recent years as well. How has the group performed? And and uh, I'll say I used to be on one of the litany of boards for Venture for America, the Entrepreneur Board. Um, how is how has the organization performed in achieving the mission? You know, I think what we've been able to do is to create, you could say, the equivalent of a Harvard Business School for entrepreneurs, except mm. we did it without um, charging you hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, you don't have to pay to do this program. You actually get paid by a company. Um, we've been able to help, um, you know, hundreds of startups around the country build and grow um, by getting access to talent, um, you know, that really wants to work hard and um, is willing to move there that wasn't going to move to Detroit or New Orleans otherwise. And again, going on to start a couple hundred companies that have collectively raised hundreds of millions of dollars is, is you know, and, and some of them have exited, although we're very early in the life cycle of the of most of these businesses, you know, like that's a, you know, we, we think it's off to a roaring start and we think that there can't be too many programs that contribute to building a stronger innovation ecosystem in this country and that take all kinds of different approaches to do it. 
And I think, you know, VFA has definitely found its place as one of those programs. That's awesome. Yeah, you guys were, there, there was an, uh, another dimension in terms of mission, which was to help reinvigorate those cities. What did you guys learn through the process about what it takes to kind of breathe life into communities around with regard to innovation? Yeah, you know, I think um, one thing is the country is probably in a better position economically than it was in 2011 when we started this and we were recovering from a really brutal recession. Um, so um, the macroeconomic trends have favored that. I also think that innovation and startups are just way more in vogue than they were at some level back then. Um, I think that this last year has proven that you can have a distributed team, you can build a great company from anywhere. You know, we're having this conversation virtually. Um, that's the new normal for how you can build companies. And these are like really super cool, but lower cost of living cities um, where all of a sudden you're seeing more investment dollars going in those directions. You're seeing good companies come out of different places. Um, you know, and, and I think um, there are still just a couple of really credible startup super hubs in the country, but there are a lot of smaller communities that have grown, um, you know, over the last uh, eight or 10 years. Awesome. Thank you for all of that. Last question for you. What's the most important thing you've learned as an entrepreneur? A little bit of wisdom you could leave for the audience. Um, I think, um, you know, I guess for, for me, the most important thing I've learned building companies, because I don't know if I call myself an entrepreneur, um, building companies is that it's all about the people in the team. Um, and, and there's a couple of good reasons for that. Um, I have a rule. Um, that I call the first 10 rule, which is whenever I make a hire, um, I want to make sure that it's someone that I would have hired in the first 10 people of the company. And that's because um, so many things will change over the course of your time, but you need people who are adaptable and who, are, who have that figure it out mindset. Also, those are the people who are motivated and nonlinear aspirational thinkers, and they're going to continue to be that as you grow. And, you know, that makes the company more able to take on new challenges and grow and succeed when you change what you're doing. And if you surround yourself with those people, like the key to continuing to work on startups and growth stage businesses is to be hyper motivated every day. And you're going to be most motivated when you're working with a group of people who impress you. And I think, you know, my happiness at, at VFA and then at Bonza has been driven by building an organization that's just like chock full of people who we would have loved to have had in our first 10. Um, and I think if you can build your team that way for as long as humanly possible, you will end up with a really exciting organization that will always rise to meet the challenges. This has been super insightful. Thank you for your time. Thanks so much, Mark. Great catching up with you. Well, that was super informative. Mike really knows his game. Separately, I can't wait to try out the chickpea pizza. If you like what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. To hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis. <laughs>